Good morning. It's nice to see uh, all of you here. I don't know why I sometimes seem so surprised on a sunshiny summer Sunday morning to have so many folks gathered here, but it's nice to uh, be here with you all. As I was preparing this week, trying to uh, think about this passage and uh, just how it related to my own life, at least part of this passage, if not the, the whole two paragraphs and two concepts, I remember that as I was growing up, um, and I think throughout my life, I have never uh, enjoyed 100% submitting to authority. I have never, as I look back, always enjoyed, with a smile on my face, giving in to the person who was over me, be it my wife or my mother or <laughs> whoever. But no, it, seriously, it was true in my uh, relationships with my parents. It was true uh, in my relationship to my athletic career. It was true as I went to college. Uh, it was especially true as I went to seminary. Um, and it's still true to some degree today because there are authorities who are over me giving me directions. And this doesn't mean that I don't obey uh, when I'm supposed to. It means that I struggle emotionally uh, and volitionally. There are times when it's just hard for me uh, to want to give in. And I was reminded that, uh, as I looked at an illustration of a caterpillar, my sister-in-law gave my little daughter Rebecca a plastic jar, and they have these neat kits out these days, and you get five caterpillars in the jar, and they look like hardly anything, and in about seven to ten days they grow, and they tell you, just leave them in the jar, and they'll climb up and hang at the top of the jar and form a cocoon, and in another seven to ten days, then they'll come out of the cocoon, and for three days you can watch them, and then you, you let them go. And I thought, what a picture of, of submission. That caterpillar probably, I don't know this, probably does not really want to do what it's going to do. It, it probably just does it, but doesn't know know much about it, but it's submitting to the law of nature, and God established the law of nature. But the caterpillar, when it submits to the law of nature, turns into a beautiful butterfly. And I thought about every time that I did submit to the authority and do what I was supposed to do, I was a better person for that. And we all intellectually agree that, yes, we're going to submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He's a nice, benevolent dictator, a loving God. But when that nice, benevolent, benevolent dictator, loving God, asks us to submit to an imperfect person, we think he's gone crazy. Say, so that's ridiculous. Are you sure you're asking me to do the right thing? I mean, I don't mind submitting to you, God, some of the time. But I don't want to submit to this other person any of the time. And last week, we talked about the uh, relationship between husbands and wives. This morning... We're going to move on and talk about two other very important relationships in society, that of parents and children, and also what is called the master-slave relationship, but I see it more as the labor-management relationship in our society. Some of you may think that you are slaves, uh, but hopefully you have a certain degree of freedom. And as we go into this passage this morning, we need to keep in mind the general context which has been set for us in previous weeks in Ephesians. And the first guiding principle is in Ephesians 5.18. And at that point, uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesians and he's saying, Not to be drunk 
with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. And in that whole sermon, if you remember, David was talking about how we live our life on a spiritual uh, level, spiritual plane, that we are empowered with the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. He works through us. And that is the guiding principle behind these relationships, the husband and wife relationship, as well as the parent-child relationship, and the labor-management relationship. The Holy Spirit must be working through us in order for us to do what God wants us to do. And that is balanced by Ephesians 5.21, which says that we are to submit one to another. See, those are the overriding principles for this whole section. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and labor and management. So we need to keep those in mind as we go through this time uh, this morning. So as we do that, Let's turn to Ephesians, if you're not there yet, to chapter 6, and start at verse 1, and we'll hopefully work our way through verse 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Yuck. If you're a child out there, you're going, God, (laughs) wait a minute. But this is true. The first thing we note is that it's a command. It's there in black and white. It doesn't say obey when you feel like it, obey when it's to your advantage, obey when you think it's fun. It just says obey. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the only exception that I could think of is that if your parents are asking you to do something which God says you should not do. You know, if they're asking you to lie, to cheat, to steal, to be involved in some kind of immorality, then you, as a child, have a right to say, sorry, God's authority is higher. But anything other than that, children are to respond in obedience. And we need to see this as a reflection of God's character. God is not out there to wipe us out, to put us asunder. He's out there to help us. He gives us commands because He loves us and He knows what's best for us. And He says, at this stage, when you're a child living at home with your parents, you need to obey, you need to submit. This is a good thing. And the verb here is actually the idea of listening under. That there is an authority over you, and you are the one who is to listen. And the idea of listening is one with response. It's not that we listen and do not respond. That's not listening at all. But when we obey, we listen, and we seek to respond. And I think there are some good reasons for this. When you would ask me, why do I need to submit to my parents? They are so cruel and unusual and such turkeys... Because God says it's well-pleasing in His sight. If we look at Colossians 3.20, He points out, He says explicitly, Paul says, that this is well-pleasing in God's sight. You see, if we want to be obedient to God, if we want to do God's will, then that means we obey our parents. I was doing a seminar at the high school camp. Some of you know I taught a class called Living With Your Teenager and Liking It through the winter quarter. Well, I changed the name to fit the occasion. I said I called it Living with Your Parents and Liking It. And we talked over this very passage, and they weren't real excited about it, but they got the point. If I want to walk with God, if I want to be obedient to God, that means I obey His commands. That means I submit to my parents. Also, God is a God of order, not of chaos. If we didn't have this kind of order, there would probably be home around chaos. Chaos at home. 
But he's designed this family relationship to have some order to it. The idea that the parents are giving out some of the orders and the children are to respond in obedience. And it's also easier to learn these lessons of submission and obedience at home. I can think of no safer context than the home to learn about the rest of the world. We are always going to be submitting to somebody. As Bob Dylan says in one of his songs, you've got to serve somebody, and we're always serving somebody. And the place to learn about respect for authority is in the home. We have the comfort of our parents who love us, who hopefully want to do what's best for us. And the home is the place that God has designed for that to take place. So when we come out of the home, we have a respect for all authority and not a disrespect for it. Some of you are already asking, well, when am I no longer a child? When is this command no longer applicable to me? And I think there are two basic points to keep in mind to determine that, because Scripture does not lay it out black and white and say, well, at 16 or at 18 or at 20, you are no longer subject to this command. But I believe it's based on where you are living. Are you living at home or are you living away from home? And to whom are you relying on for the necessities of life? Who is footing the bill for the, the clothes, the food, the rent, the heat, da-da-da-da-da-da, the college tuition, you know, to that point. So I think we have to look and say, okay, how am I involved with my parents? And what kind of a relationship? Am I dependent upon them? Am I living with them? And you may be uh, under 18, though that's the legal age in this society for voting and that you are legally responsible for your actions. You may be under 18 and out on your own, in which case, I'm not sure that you are subject to this command. You may be over 18 and going to college. You might be living at home or else you might be dependent upon your parents for your college education, in which case, you are still subject to this command to some degree. Now, Paul continues on in verses 2 and 3, highlighting what he has stated in verse 1. He goes back to the Old Testament, to the uh, fifth law in the Decalogue, and says, Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. We are to honor our father and our mother, I think, throughout life. We honor them when we're young, when we're at home, by being obedient to them. And later on in life, we honor them by being respectful to them, treating them respectfully. I no longer live with my parents. I am no longer subject to my father's every whim. I no longer wake up in the morning and come to the breakfast table and find notes of what I'm supposed to do for the day. But I still honor my father and my mother by being respectful to them by developing my relationship with them, by not trying to do things that will intentionally upset them when I'm with them, by communicating with them, by holding them in a place uh, of respect and honor and caring for them and showing them that I love them so that we have an ongoing, growing relationship. As a matter of fact, my relationship with my parents now is much better than it was five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. And then he says that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. I see as a uh, proverbial promise, a general statement of truth, that if we live under this 
idea of honoring our parents, of being obedient to them, then life will really be better for us. If we start out with the rebellious mode, life is just going to get difficult. Now, it's not true in every single situation. And that's the point of a proverb. It's not true in every specific situation. It is true in general. And General Paul is saying that it will be a better life for you, children, young adults who are living at home, if you will submit yourself to your parents' authority. Don't kick against the goads. Don't tug on the reins too much, but have a submissive heart towards them. And these seem like hard words, but God never gives us a command without giving us the power to obey that command. We need to remember that. That's the principle of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And if these seem like hard words, then take a look at the next verse that he has for fathers. I think these are even harder words. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now note to whom this command is given. He probably could have said, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. But Paul chose to say, fathers. Why fathers? Why did he pick on us poor guys? I mean, we're just out trying to do a job, earn a few bucks, come home and lead the family and da-da-da-da-da. Well, I think he picks on the fathers because the bulk of revelation in Scripture is addressed to the fathers as far as the responsibility for the home, the responsibility for the spiritual nourishment of the wife and the children. See, it's our responsibility. But there's sometimes when we just want to abdicate that responsibility. We're not comfortable with it. We're tired of working all day. We're tired of relationships. We just want to veg out. We want to come home and hide. And he says, fathers... That's not what you're supposed to do. Fathers also have to work at their relationship with their kids. For mothers, it seems like it's a natural thing. And I observe this in my house. And I'm not sure it's just because there are three little girls that they cling to mom, but it's mom who seems to meet their needs. It's mom who seems to be around them. When they're in trouble, when they're hurting, who do they run to? Me? Uh Uh-uh. Not if mom's there. (laughs) And sometimes it, it... kind of tugs at my heart that they don't. But I know I have to work at developing that relationship with my children. I have to take time when I'm around them to cultivate that relationship. It isn't just going to happen as a father if you're gone most of the day. You're going to have to work at it. So he reminds us and says that you're going to have to work at that relationship. And I think this is a harder command for fathers to obey than for mothers. It's just hard for us as fathers uh, to develop that relationship. I think it's akin to where Paul says, husbands, love your wives. He tells husbands to love their wives. He doesn't have to tell wives to love their husbands. That comes naturally. And I think in the same way, he has to tell fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It sounds to me like he's saying, hey, the odds are real good that you're going to do that. That's why I'm talking to you, fathers. Do not provoke your kids to anger. And how do we do that? Well, we're going to talk about that, but I don't want mothers to tune out right away. Because some of you may be single parents. 
you may have to take on the role of the mom and the dad. That may have happened in some, some course of action. And also, as mothers, you need to be aware of what is it that, you're, that the husband, the father, might be doing to provoke the children to anger. You need to be that supportive team member to your husband to help him develop that relationship with his kids. You can't just sit by and observe and see it deteriorate, if it is. You need to step in and be a helper there. So how do we provoke? Well, the idea of provoke here is to incite to anger by inappropriate action. That's the general idea. That you do something that incites your child to anger and your action is inappropriate. And guess who gets upset? Both you and your child are probably going to get upset in that situation. Let me give you just five quick ways that I have come up with that we provoke children to anger. One of them is that we're too strict. We're too hard as parents. Either in the setting up of the rules that we have, that the limits are too narrow, or that we make too many rules, unnecessary rules. We want them to do things a certain way when it doesn't really matter which way they would do it, as long as the job gets done appropriately. But we want it done our way. I want you to make your bed this way and this way only. Or I want you to carry out the garbage this way. Or I want you to mow the lawn this way. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, is my discipline here for my convenience or for my child's good? That's always a hard question for me to answer. Am I laying down the law for my child's good or am I laying down the law for my own personal convenience as a parent? And sometimes I have to say, yes, I'm being selfish. I'm laying down the law so, it's more, so life is more convenient for me, so it's easier for me, not that it's going to be better for my child. The second area is that we're too loose. We're too permissive. And if I could just say it this way, if there are no limits, there is no love. To be loose, without limits, without rules for your children is not a loving thing to do. Though society would have us think that that is great and that is real love, that is not real love. Love has limits. If we love our children, we're going to set boundaries because they really desire that we have boundaries. That they have boundaries. So they will know where those boundaries are. And if you observe especially teenagers, you will find that if there are no boundaries, they will continue to push to try to find some boundaries out there. They'll just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. If there's nothing to push against, they end up in a very frustrated, rebellious state. And who do they get angry at? They get angry at the parents in the long run, wishing that their parents had done a little bit better job of being parents. The third area is that we're inconsistent, either as a parent, in dealing with your child, you are inconsistent in the way in which you uh, talk with them, discipline them, treat them, or the two of you together as parents are inconsistent. You haven't teamed up yet and worked at doing things together. So the child plays you like a drum and says, well, if dad says no, mom will say yes. 
Or if mom says no, I know I can talk to dad alone and dad will say yes. The fourth area is a lack of appropriate communication, either verbally or non-verbally. We as fathers, I think, especially stumble in this area of giving appropriate communication to our children. And it needs to be both. It needs to be appropriate verbal communication, appropriate non-verbal communication. They need to know that we love them. Our children desperately need to know that. I don't think they doubt it for a minute that mom loves them because mom does everything for them from stage zero. But sometimes dad's not around and we have to work at letting them know that we love them. We have to tell them that. We have to show them that. Physically, we have to pick them up and hug them and meet some of their needs. The fifth area is that we tend to treat all children the same. We lack sensitivity. Again, I think it's fathers who primarily, primarily lack sensitivity. And we just get the cookie cutter out, and if we have more than one child, we just start stamping it. Boom! 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 And the problem is, no two children are the same. They're motivated differently. They learn differently. They have different interests. And that drives us crazy as parents because we can only respond to one at a time. We're going, wait a minute, how can I do this? I can't respond to you, and I can't respond to you, and I can't respond to you. With God's grace and the Holy Spirit, you can. You must. We must. I've got three children at home, and they are as different as night and day. What motivates one does nothing for the other one. Frustrates the socks off of me. I can dangle a carrot out in front of one of them and they'll just go, 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 go for the carrot. And I'll do that with a piece of cake for the other one and she'll just kick it. <laughs> cake? Nah, no thanks. So it's a real struggle for me to figure out how to deal with these different children. But I need to be sensitive to that and I need to treat them individually so they don't become frustrated. Paul takes the... Uh, the negative and turns it around to a positive with that little word but there but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and those are two key words discipline and instruction see as parents the goal that we have for our children is self-discipline that's our long-range goal it always amounts to corrective instruction and preventative instruction if there's a problem that comes up, we want to correct it. But we also want to give input on how to prevent certain problems. And the first word there, discipline, has that idea. A training process with your child to show them directly, uh, to guide them on the path when they're off of it. The discipline, the corrective part. And the second word there, instruction, appeals more to the mental process of teaching them, of helping them learn ahead of time. Trying to show them that, yes, fire does burn without them trying to burn themselves. And so we need to keep that in mind, that there are two ways in which we need to be working with our children. And that last phrase, of the Lord, I believe is the general context in which this all takes place. Doing all this in a manner that is pleasing to God. That's how I see the phrase, uh, of the Lord. So in all that we're doing as parents and raising children, the bottom line is 
God, is this pleasing to you? Is this really the righteous thing? Is this what you would have me do? Or am I being selfish? Am I being petty? And ask him to give you some answers. And it may require spending some time in his word. Now, in principle, what seems to be true for husbands and wives, parents and children, is no less true in the marketplace of life. So Paul switches uh, locations from inside the home to outside the home as he discusses the slave-master relationship. And for our society, I, I see this more as the labor-management or employee-employer relationship. In verse 5, he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. What we're going to find out in these verses is that these four or five verses are permeated with the idea of our relationship to Christ. As to Christ. From Christ. With Christ. So it's inseparable that our relationship to our boss or to our employee is interlinked in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, we find that slaves be obedient. No option. Same word, same situation as, as verse 1 with children, obey your parents. And the picture for this word is a doorkeeper, one who is listening for the signal of the person who is knocking at the door that has the authority to enter. And all the doorkeeper is supposed to do when they hear the signal is answer, open the door, respond in action. That's what we're supposed to be. When I'm given something to do, I'm supposed to respond by opening the door. Listening for the signal, what you're supposed to do, and then open the door. Carry out the action. To those who are your masters according to the flesh. There are people out there who are our masters in the flesh in, with respect to the fact that they are masters in some way here on earth. They are our boss. They are our authority. I have several of them. Uh, David Roper is my immediate authority here. The Board of Elders at Cole are, are an authority figure for me, uh, frequently giving me little directives about doing this, that, and the other thing, somewhat primarily related to getting a roof over that structure out there. But I have all kinds of little tasks that they ask me to do. And I'm not supposed to be questioning, I'm supposed to be responding. Again, if it's anything that is not against God's law, if it's not involved in immorality, I don't have a choice. That's just what I'm supposed to do. That's what's honoring to God, is to respond in that way. I'm supposed to be respectful to that authority figure. It says, with fear and trembling, the same kind of words that are used to describe how we're to respond to God in respect. We're to have fear and trembling before God in the same way, the same kind of respect, Paul says, is due to those who are our authority in the marketplace, our authority at work. In sincerity of heart. And the idea behind being sincere is doing what we can in thought or action without personal gain. There is no duplicity in our thought or our action. And as I was <clears throat> thinking about this this past week, a play came to my mind. Some of you may be familiar with it. 
play called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And if you've seen that, you know that the star of the play is a person who starts out at the very bottom of the business, and he just does a flurry of activity, which really isn't very productive at all, with the total purpose of show for the boss. And he keeps being elevated from one level to another until he gets to the very top of the company. But all his activity has purely been for show, with duplicity, no sincerity involved in it. And so we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing? Am I doing it for God, or am I doing it for show? Am I doing it for my employer? Because he says, we're to have a sincere heart, the same kind of heart that we would have as to Christ. That relationship that we see through our authority figure, through our boss, to the person of Jesus Christ, and respond in that way. Not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The eye service, doing something merely for attraction, for attention, as I mentioned in that illustration of how to succeed in business without really trying. Being men-pleasers amounts to sacrificing for the sake of principle. We sacrifice our principle to please men. We sacrifice our relationship with God to please men, to try to gain favor. But Paul says we are slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Our heart is the source, and it's our evaluator. It's the source of our action, our attitude, and our heart evaluates our attitude. All we have to do is look inside to our heart, and we will find out what kind of attitude it is that we have. This does not mean that we can never go against the authorities, our bosses. Most corporations, most companies have channels set up that if you don't like what's going on, you can appeal through those channels. And there's nothing wrong with the, as a Christian with doing that, with making the appropriate appeals. We can do it in the, in the court system. We can also do it at the place where we work. And there's nothing wrong with you as a Christian using those. But if you use those appeals and they're turned down, then your choice is to leave where you're employed or to submit to the authority. Not to rant and rave and make a big fuss. Now, verse 7 and 8, he talks about the motivation we're to have. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. The word is seek out the best for our employer. We're to render good service as we would to God. We're to serve our employer, our authority, as we would serve God. Whatever it is, with his best interest at heart. And the good thing about this is that there is no menial task for us as a Christian. There is no labor that is too meaningless. Everything that we do has some meaning. Every job that you have. I remember when I was growing up that I worked for my father and I started out below ground level cleaning out a sewer my first day. And it got a little bit better after that, but not a whole lot. That's probably why I'm here instead of there. <laughs> not really. Because he's listening in. He does listen to the tapes that, that get sent out. So, <laughs> I do love you, Dad. <laughs> but the, the phrase that, that it all pays the same, it doesn't matter what you do. It all pays the same. 
You're under contract for X number of dollars per hour. It doesn't matter what you do. You're being contracted to do what, what you're told to do for X amount of pay. And if you don't like it, quit. Leave. But don't grumble about it. Because that's not what God wants us to do. And the flip side to this, in one verse, Paul says to masters, And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there, there is no partiality with him. You see, if you are the supervisor, if you are the manager, if you are the employer, you have a responsibility to your employees to treat them with the same kind of respect that we've just talked about here, that Paul's laid out for them. All you have to do is turn your page over to Philippians, the very next book, the very next page in chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, that's what God has asked the servant to do, the employee to do for the employer. And he turns right around and says, that's the same thing I'm asking of you, Mr. Authority, Mr. Boss, Mr. Manager. Do not look out for your own personal interests. Look out for the interests of other people. And I can think of two very good uh, illustrations of people I know. One is a person who was asked to go on a week-long um, ministry endeavor, and he could have done it. He could afford to do it. But he has a small business, and if he were to go, his employees wouldn't have any work to do. Because without him, they don't have the jobs, the skills, or whatever. So he turned it down. A fantastic ministry opportunity said, no, I can afford to do it, but if I go, my employees can't afford to be out of work. He's looking out for the best interests of his employees. Another person had an unfaithful employee, could have fired that employee. But he said, no, uh, I'm going to hang in there, give second and third chances. And hopefully at this point, that employee has become a Christian through that experience. See, the employer was looking out for the best interest of the employee, even though a disservice had been done to him. And those are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind. Because sometimes we're too quick, we're too harsh, we're too judgmental. And we need to keep that in mind because our master is everybody's master. God is the master of the employer, of the supervisor, of the worker, of the employee. And he doesn't see two different people. He only sees one kind of person out there. He's not impressed by the fact that you own your company. He's not impressed by the fact that society thinks you're great. He's impressed by the fact that you love him. He's impressed by the fact that you treat people equally, that you don't threaten them, that you don't sexually harass them. That's what impresses God. We all have the same master. We all have the same father. And we need to realize that in our relationships at home and our relationships at work. Remember the caterpillar. That by responding and being submissive to the law of nature turned into a beautiful butterfly. 
as we respond to the will of God here, he will make us more beautiful people. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer or be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand, imprisoned within the, thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. By giving ourselves to God, submitting ourselves to Him, He will make us strong as parents, as children, as employers, as employees. Father, thank you for your word of truth. Sometimes they are truly like droplets of gold, like pieces of silver, beautiful as diamonds. And we love them, but sometimes we struggle to obey them. Humble us, Father, and teach us to be that submissive person in every aspect of our life in which we need to be submissive. Amen.